Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the question, what is Sikhism or Sikhi? My guest is Dr. Balbinder Bogal, who has been the chair in Sikh studies at Hofstra University since 2008. We discuss the effects of colonization on Sikhi, and I learn what karma really is. So come, have a seat with us, and learn to listen with me. Perfectly blunt. My knowledge of uh, uh, Sikhism or Sikhi. Do you have a preference, and how do you say that? Uh, Sikhi. So Sikhi. Uh, the British in India, they would not pronounce. They would mispronounce it because it would mean Sikh would mean you're ill. So they would elongate oh. it and say Sikh, but that's a mispronunciation. So even Sikhs Got it. in Britain, where I grew up, I I, yeah. I grew up saying Sikh rather than Sikh. So Sikhi. It's with a short eye, not Sikhi. a long eye. Yep. <laughs> Got it. And so for the... Um, I, my knowledge of uh, Sikhi is literally like weak Wikipedia. Yeah. So if you feel free to treat me as a uh, dumb freshman. I think that'd be a great... <laughs> Might be a little pejorative, <laughs> but uh, I think it is useful in this instance. Well, I'm, um, I'm just amazed that uh, you would off your own back, be interested in researching Sikhism or Sikhi? Oh, uh, yeah, that's what this is about. That's yeah. like big questions. I mean, when I look at, um, uh, it's, it's kind of my goal, and I've, I've asked, you know, people who listen to the podcast are going to see only the guests who answer. <laughs> right. But I've already asked representatives from uh, my goal is to have on people from uh, Shintoism. Uh, mm. You know, I, I mean, I, I think when we talk about pursuing big questions, if we don't include the different religious traditions, that's <laughs> <laughs> like I, that's that's not the answer, right? Yeah. Like, um, not that you know. And even looking at your paper, like the idea of the answer is an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, be, before we get too far, I mean, tell us a little bit about your personal journey. Um, you know, uh, you're, are you, you're a practicing Sikh? Uh, mostly. <laughs> mostly. Okay. I, you know, I, I mean, I, that was an open question. I, I should have, uh, I should have like worded that better, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just understanding, uh, how did you come to, you wanted to be a professor in this, you wanted to teach about this. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Where did that passion start? I mean, if you want to start back in childhood, I know there's always some funny stories that happen with yeah. that. But uh, or if you want to start with your professional career, wh whatever you're most comfortable with. There are critical moments in each life where lasting impressions are forged. And mm. uh, so I, I think self-reflection is really difficult. And mm. that um, life itself is a full force, continuous, unbroken stream of consciousness experiences. But we are unable to absorb it in that way. So you could call that a first mm. order. And then a second order reflection is required, an interpretive move, move where we would um, try and capture this incredible flow of data, let's say, or impressions and in our sensorium, 
And the way we would capture that would be to tell a story with key moments and a plot line. But mm. we, we can get immersed in the story and forget that the, there's that flow underneath. And so there's a yes. dynamism there. And I think that will be a theme throughout uh, what I say. Um, so my reflection is difficult because I know I'm making up stories. I yes. know that I'm, I'm putting signposts in. But those signposts may be um, incorrect, misunderstood, and uh, taking me into wrong directions. And that's certainly mm. what it seems to be for my beginning. So I, I do have to go back to my childhood. And if mm. I were to pick up a number of themes throughout this sort of journey and some of those major signposts that uh, forge these impressions in a sort of coherent mode that I can uh, understand, it would be migration, trauma, Abuse, although mm. I probably won't go into the abuse, but migration, trauma, translation, and uh, meaning making. So, so my family uh, are from northwest India, the Punjab, and we, we mm -hmm. migrated to Africa, Tanzania, where my job, my dad worked as an engineer for the British. And so that's one migration. I was born in Africa, in Tanzania, and then at age of three, migrated to England. And mm. then as soon as we got to England, a tragedy happened where my father was actually murdered. And oh. um, I, so I lost my father and my mother, being in a new country, a new context, uh, couldn't handle it and um, went temporarily insane or was unable to compute that and yeah. uh, she, she had suf suffered terribly for that and was um, hospitalized and um, mm. was given electric shock treatment it was quite terrible so i lost my father but i also lost my mother temporarily now uh, that trauma as a child i didn't know is trauma obviously at three years old i right. don't know but uh, what, what is a father and mother to a three-year-old? They're your life support system. In other words, yeah. they're symbolic representations of the ultimate God, if you like, right? Now, that's important for later. So then mm. I grew up in England through trying to figure out how to connect with this new context. It's my migration to, to England and the English language, because of the loss of my father and the temporary loss of my mother, um, I, I lost my mother tongue and I shifted to English. Mm. English became a sort of a pseudo-mother uh, pseudo tongue and that became my first sort of like speaking language just for me to survive and to connect and to get on. Um, now, that caused a certain amount of internal alienation obviously loss and trauma in that kind of way causes alienation but it's not something that a child understands and the child just wants to connect and grow up and they do you know i i, don't, I looking back i don't think i had any problems i was quite an egotistical forward thinking <laughs> uh, loving kind of guy wanting to do everything and uh, uh, etc mm. so it wasn't until much later 
that it started to dawn on me that there's something wrong. So I, I, I became an engineer at 16. I looked at my elder brother to, as my father figure to guide me. And he said, become an engineer like me because you've got good grades in metalwork and woodwork and technical drawing and maths. Your English sucks. <laughs> I failed my English language actually four times. I couldn't get into university. Um, uh, but so I did, and I worked for Rolls Royce as a draftsman for five mm. years, and then um, decided to leave and study religion and philosophy. Now, the shift from engineering sciences to humanities and religion and philosophy is one that isn't normal. I didn't know that. I just thought I was interested because, you know, I'm into deep questions and, you know, religion and philosophy, that's where they are. What yeah. I didn't realize was that the traumas were starting to surface. Ah. And so I remember doing a BA in religion, then doing a PhD and finally getting a job and then teaching my, one of my first classes. Actually, it was the second time I was teaching Freud. The first time I laughed at him, and I couldn't believe how extreme his views were about uh, so uh, sort of lib libido and focused. Um, but the second time I mm. taught him in class, uh, as I was teaching the students, I was hearing the words being spoken to myself, and I realized for the first time that I was the one that was traumatized, and I, I needed mm. to seek help. And I, I broke down in class as I was teaching. So that, that's when I started realizing, oh, something's wrong. My, my twin brother had realized much before all the other family members. I have, uh, at that time, I had, there's five of us, three brothers, two sisters. And um, mm. my twin brother realized first, and he said, we're all traumatized. And we, we've all put in place um, coping strategies that are now creaking. The three-year-old's right. coping strategy starts to break open, you know, much later uh, in early 20s. And uh, so that made me think about um, uh, self-consciousness and self-awareness uh, mm. in, in, in a different way. And it reminds me of what uh, the Italian Marxist and political theorist Antonio Gramsci says. He says, the starting point of critical consciousness is to see oneself, see consciousness as the product of a historical process. To see oneself, see one's consciousness as a product of a historical process to date. And realize that the, that production has infinite traces. There's infinite traces right. that form my in interior life, but there's no inventory. There's no index. So until yes. we start to self-reflect about what these impressions are, uh, we need to take account of all of these experiences, these traces, these infinite traces. Yeah. And so um, I started on that process. So what became very clear to me was um, how an effort had to be made to translate the encounters that I was experiencing into a, a narrative that allowed me not just to survive, but to actually direct my life. 
Now, right. survivor sto- stories are uh, interesting to me because of this. And, but I don't claim that I'm a survivor because I think if the survivor survives because they put in a coping strategy, they're not really surviving until they've overcome that coping strategy. So my coping strategy at three is, oh, subconsciously and spontaneously, I invented the notion that, so without my knowing, just subconsciously and spontaneously, I invented the notion that um, I should be good, behave, and my father would come back. Right? And there's that yearning there for my parents and my, my father to come back. And that's the yearning for God. And hence my shift from engineering to religion and philosophy. I was just intrigued by, you know, I moved from objects, um, aerodynamics, uh, 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 plane engines, to uh, subject, me, the issue of who am I, what happens after death, etc., the big questions. Another bridge across there wasn't just the trauma, but it was martial arts. I had done martial arts, and the martial arts teaches you something very interesting. And it was a, a safe haven for me, which I only realized in retrospect. And the safe haven was to do with my body, because both Sikhi and the martial arts treat the body as sacred. It's a temple. It's not um, mm. full of muscle strength. It's full of um, an opening to a strength beyond the ego, an inviting of, you know, like in Chinese, it would be chi. Uh, in Indian philosophy, it would be prana and how you would have breath work and meditation as a part of uh, sacralizing the martial art. The art side really intrigued me. Um, so that was another bridge, which I only much later realized was a crucial bridge to try and rewrite the index, the inventory like, of what's been happening. Right. And having right. that self-reflection that, oh, okay, um, that makes sense that it's my body. More about that much later. But then I eventually got a job at uh, Derby University in England, then migrated again because the department after five years closed down, migrated to uh, the US, uh, to Virginia, and uh, uh, in Harrisonburg, at James Madison University. Only there for a one-year contract, then uh, migrated to uh, Toronto, to York University, and was there for another five years. So there's these five-year signposts, five years at Derby University, <laughs> five years at York University, and then I migrated again back to the U.S. to New York at Hofstra University. So I'd experienced three academic cultures in that kind of move. And, but all the while, what started to become increasingly pertinent to me was Salman Rushdie's quote, the, the writer that wrote Satanic Verses. And he says, to see things plainly, you have to cross a frontier. And I was thinking, oh, I, that's what uh, migration is, is translation into a new context. So often when people think about traveling to a new place, they want to see new things, have new perspectives. But I realized was that as long as I remained within a certain home, I am uh, familiar with and comfortable with 
um, I'm invisible because everybody else shares that culture, that tradition, that way of life. And I, I, I don't see any difference. People just affirm the priority of values, etc., and aspirations. And it's only when you leave that do you realize that, um, uh, I don't mean travel from Canada to US, there's two similar, I mean, like from yeah, India, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> India to, to, to England or England to America or to Syria, some major move like that. Then what becomes immediately important about to see things plainly, you have to cross a frontier, is that you're seeing oneself plainly. You become visible to yourself through the questioning of the other who doesn't share your value system, who doesn't share your assumptions. And suddenly you realize, oh, what I have been brought up with is arbitrary. It's geographic, it's climactic, it's tradition, it's culture, but it's only of this area. And so that's the first sort of post-colonial point of the geography of knowledge and how one is, how one's own interior is shaped by that. And how the shift from the encounter to the meaning-making must never be final and must always be renegotiated. Because if we have encounter, which is our bodies, and we shift to meaning-making, which is our minds and our interpretation, we're shifting from translation to interpretation. When we shift to interpretation, interpretation is the mode of comfort, of, of control, of organization. And that can be a blind wall such that if you don't travel outside the context, you'll be interpreting like everybody else interprets. So there, there's a theme there that starts to become really important that goes through all of my work, where the encounter with the other as oneself, as being the base ground, base unit, which is unthinkable. It is un unnameable, yet needs names, needs thoughts, needs concepts to be um, uh, approached and engaged. But none of those names capture it. So that's what the body is. The body is an unnameable in the, in the Sikh tradition. It's too sacred. It, the earth is too sacred. The trees are too sacred. They're nameless. They're, they're actually the form of the divine. Uh, the, in the Sikh tradition, the creator is in the creation and the creation is in the creator, which is unlike the Abrahamic traditions. Um, so here you have a very... That, that sacralizes every single form. And that's why I say the encounter with the other uh, is a mode of... Um, uh, could be a mode of awakening. Um, yeah, so, so that trauma, I think, got me to ask questions about religion and philosophy that I thought were just my ego's interest. But it was my right. e the, where my ego was cracking that the interest was pushing through. Hmm. I think of almost like a, a sapling coming up through concrete. Right, right, exactly. That's exactly right. Concrete would be the interpretive layer that we put on life. And in Indian philosophy, that interpretive layer is always delusional. Hmm. That we have to break through that and connect with the real, which is the sapling. How do we connect with the sapling is, is uh, what Sikhi is all about. Actually, the integration, I should correct that. 
the integration with the sapling, with the concrete, with translation, with interpretation, with encounter, with meaning making, the integration of those two is crucial, not to get just lost in, in the namings that we egos give life, whether it's pessimistic or optimistic frames that we put on and impose life. Yeah, in the in the West, we definitely have that. Um, what I have come to term just uh, in shorthand, like a language of boxes. And so, and I think that's yeah. If something doesn't fit in the box, we cut it to fit. <laughs> and that what you do is you lose the nature of the thing. Um, couple things. One is uh, for our audience that isn't as familiar. When you talk about traces and how. Uh, there are infinite traces in the production of conscious of our consciousness through the use of story of creating these signposts. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Explain that a little more for me. That brings to mind like the markings of uh, machines and tools on the finished product, but we don't have the tools of machines to see. All we have is the marks that they leave. Is that a good mental picture for people? It's the idea that your consciousness has these marks of production these literal these marks of production are the traces but that we don't know uh we have to figure out what the tools are that shape them from the marks themselves not because we know what those tools are or is there a better way to think about that yeah it, it, let's use a more uh dynamic you're dead right let's use a more dynamic image and sure, sure. Uh, those markings and those traces are potentials and forces of conditionings and habituations and traumas and neuroses. So the, the mental forces in the subconscious, in, in Indic terminology, is karma. Mm. Uh, the, the karma is conditioned action that um, uh, produces a certain uh, uh, pattern behavior. So mm. uh, let's say smoking, when you first smoke, you cough, and your body says to you, what are you doing? This is poisonous. Stop. But you haven't the interpretation, the delusional interpretation that I've been implying that says, no, you want to be with the in-group, so you're going to carry on, and you, you ignore the body, suppress what the body mm. is feeling, and then you, you impose a certain belief system about coolness or James Dean or whatever is in your mind, right? <laughs> so so you're, what happens there is that um, if I were to stop after the first cigarette, nothing, there wouldn't be a mark, they wouldn't leave a trace. Soon, the flow of consciousness would make that sort of negligible as a potential mm. of energy. But were I to continue to do it, do it and do it until I'm three packets of cigarettes a day, then what I've done is created a massive potential. And I've narrowed my freedoms to such an extent that now I'm not smoking. I'm being smoked by the cigarette, and I'm 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 uh, a slave to my habituation, yes. my habit. I'm an addict. So what's mm. inside us are karmic addictions, karmic uh, patterns, and forces, and impressions, and traces that are potentials that are acting in us from previous lives. So the Indic traditions believe in samsara, the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And we've had countless lives. So we have all these different potentials in us. Not potential as find your true potential, but potentials as forces of delusion, 
forces of habituation, mm. forces of misunderstanding. And so uh, that so trauma... Me. So I was going to ask, the potential... So, so potential in this sense is always negative. Or is there a, could there be a positive potential there, there from a karmic standpoint? There are definitely positive potentials. There are definitely okay. positive momentums. You can generate momentums according to greed, hatred, and delusion, as the Buddhists say. Or you could generate momentums that promote their opposites. The greed, yep. hatred, and delusion close down your world, narrow your world into a linguistic fascism, them and us, mm. and hate and love. I like, I don't like, right? That kind of thing. Or it can open ones up to a looseness with language such that the beauty could be seen in anything and everything. So potentials, momentums, karma can work both ways. Something more than karma needs to occur for awakening, though. That's in Buddhism and in Sikhism. So it's not just about um, cultivating the ground such that it's fertile to have the sprout sapling to burst through of a new awareness. Um, that new awareness it, it, it isn't something that's caused in either Sikhi or, or, or in Buddhism. It's not causal. It's not that you meditate 20 years and then you'll wake up. <laughs> As though, okay, you just have to do 20 hours, you know, 10,000 hours, this. We would love to quantify these things. But there's no, right, there's right. no technique that can cause awakening. That requires something like it, um, uh, that's more like a blessing in the Sikh tradition uh, or mm. uh, uh, to do with insight, uh, prajna, wisdom, a eureka moment where you say, oh, the penny drops. You know, mm. you, people have, your mother has been telling you something very simple. Every single day you've been growing up because you keep making mistakes and she says, you're not listening, you're not listening. And then you don't hear until eventually you fall in love with somebody and uh, they say it to you and say, you're not listening to me. And suddenly you hear for the first time. And your podcast, um, which is based on a, a beautiful sick beginning because it's to do with um, the discipline and the creating of the habit of listening that's the first mm. step on the on sick spirituality is to create the habit of listening and so i'd love to say i did that on purpose <laughs> but i did not <laughs> but, but that that um uh, listening is uh mm. something that suddenly you get but when why didn't you get it when you were told how long is a piece of string? How many times do you need to be told before you get it? So when you get it, mm. it's, it's, it's to do with um, the penny dropping. Nobody knows when that will happen. And that's why we can't coerce people. We can just show them the way yeah. to cultivate the ground such that the possibility of the penny dropping becomes real. Right. So it's mysterious how you actually wake up. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, and it, this kind of, I think, takes us, uh, you, you have your latest paper, God, Amphora in, forgive me, I started reading from the top here, God, Amphora in Clay and Light, uh, talking about kind of the uh, Sikhi conception of truth. And I, I even looking at some of your other work, I realized that that has some <laughs> European flair to it. <laughs> I, I apologize for that. Um, you know, I, obviously coming, you know, I'm crossing a frontier here <laughs> where I don't like, I, I am trying to speak a new language, but 
Uh, talk to me. Uh, you have this kind of, I believe you say, pluriversal, yeah. Uh, yeah, sicky concept of truth. Do you mind elaborating on that? Sure. Um, this might take a little while. Uh, That's fine. First, yeah. we'll establish <laughs> what the universal is before sure. we can understand what the pluriversal is. In mm. the, and this ties to the notion of um, religion and why. Sikhi is not well translated as religion. And um, so let, let's just, if you give me a little bit of time, I'll sort of like elaborate what I'm trying to suggest. And I'll try and get to the pluriversal. <laughs> no, no worries. And I, I even had, I love that you even mentioned it because I had down here, uh, to put it colloquially, what's your beef with Zizek? Oh, right, right. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, take your time. I mean, uh, really, that's what I'm okay. here for. So great. So people understand that uh, the social constructive force of certain categories like race and the imposition of Europeans of that category on others as inferior and them, themselves being superior. So racialization makes sense and people understand the history of that. Very few people realize that that also happened with the term religion. And so therefore, religionization is also another force that was imposed by uh, European Christians colonizing the world. And so um, that category, religion, has its context in the West, in the Abrahamic traditions, in Christianity, basically. And uh, the notion of religion there doesn't necessarily map onto the notion of religion in uh, India. Uh, but that's what the term was used. So right. Sikhism arose in the you know, 18th, 19th, 20th century. Uh, uh, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, Taoism. <laughs> now you start to see Confucianism. Yes. We're starting to see, oh, this isn't, these aren't terms that originate within those areas. They're imposed from mm. a center, which is Europe, onto the, to those areas. So so this is the first point of post-colonialism is that our we have, we have forgotten this. We think that religion is natural. It's a natural word. Sikhs, Jains, Buddhists, Hindus think religion is a natural word on a popular level. Many people, uh, scholars, scholars realize the um, inappropriate nature of the term and its imposition. Um, we 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 have forgotten the inscriptions through pain that were put on all the colonized. One of the legacies is um, language. For instance, um, uh, people know that karma might be Indic, or mantra might be Indic, or guru might be Indic, but they don't know that pajamas. Shampoo, juggernaut, bungalow, loot, bangles, cowries, court, khaki, pundit, calico, jodhpurs, a hot toddy, a punch, sherbet, jungle, thug. People might think that's um, Snoop Dogg <laughs> with his thug life. But uh, thug, tuggy is an Indic word. Shawl, cushion, avatar, chit, typhoon, catamaran, dinghy. Dakoi, dungarees, chutney, 
etc. So here we have mm. what we think are English terms, but that's the product of a historical process called colonization, which expanded the ma English becomes a master language because it absorbs these for the necessity of communication, control and domination. And the legacy of that is that we have forgotten because the West doesn't talk about its dark side. It talks about liberty, freedom, etc. And, uh, and, and people grow, growing up in the West, like my students here at Hofstra, their PJs and their shampoo, they don't have any idea. So we have forgotten not only the Indic origin, but we have forgotten that we forgot. There's right. no memory of forgetting. It's, not, it's like, a, what do you mean? Because <laughs> it's not individual, it's a collective. Uh, so here, the term religion is also constituted through a whole massive universe of forgetting of Abrahamic traditions, not being similar to Indic traditions and not being similar, similar to Asian traditions. So on the one hand, we could reject the term and uh, displace religion and try and use our own term like dharam, gur dharam, um, uh, mm. sikh dharam, dharam or dharma um, is righteousness, law, duty, cosmic order, uh, has a whole very complicated massive word with a huge history like religion has, religio has a huge history in the West. Um, or we could just simply say, okay, we'll use the term, but we have to qualify it. So I'll do that now right. very sort of briefly, because then I can answer your question about the plurivisal. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, let me just real quick. So am I tracking the same way? Because I've run into this, my, the few brushes I've had with Indian philosophy or Chinese philosophy, I was immediately struck by, it was, it, how western it felt to impose this like well this is the religion and this is the philosophy right that split isn't really apparent you know in something like confucianism am, am i is this That's exactly right is this what we're talking about that's okay. exactly right in fact just making sure i'm tracking uh, yeah uh, greek philosophy is much more relatable to indian philosophy because greek philosophy mm. was to know thyself uh, was to do with self-knowledge. That's the knowledge. But philosophy today has become object-focused, not subject-focused. And it's like philosophizing important questions. I mean, generally speaking. And that has split off from religion, which asked the who am I question. They were originally mm. together. So philosophy and religion have their own history in the West, which has separated. And therefore, it becomes deeply problematic. I mean, Sikhi is a religion. Buddhism is a religion. And it's also philosophical. But it's a sp certain right. kind of philosophy that um, I'll have to clarify later is anti-philosophical. And that's why it has resonances with the existential philosophers, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Sartre, etc. So it's a certain kind of anti-continental philosophy resonates much better with um, Indic philosophy. So let me just uh, outline the three families of religious tradition. So the Abrahamic, Judaism, uh, Christianity and Islam. What, what mm -hmm. do they... They're monarchic traditions where you have God as the sovereign who gives um, a revealed law, not human created, revelation from God through his uh, angels and emissaries. Uh, 
Humans capture that either in tablets of stone or whatever in scripture, in the Torah, in the Bible and the, the Quran, and that they are to follow that. They are to obey the commandments, the law, the Sharia, the Ten Commandments, etc. So here we have a model of religion where human beings are separated from the creator. The creator created them. So creator and creation are at different levels. The king is not the subject. The subject has to follow the law of the king. Right. So here we have a dividing line, which you don't get in Indic traditions. You have a dotted line, a permeable line. So here, uh, so the way to be religious in a very <laughs> quick caricature of Abrahamic traditions, intensely and immensely diverse traditions, I'm summarizing in such a... <laughs> Don't worry. I, I, <laughs> yes, I, that's totally. I mean, I, I've asked you to do this in you know roughly an hour. That, I mean, that's not fair to you. So, I, <laughs> summaries ex expected. Yes. So in, in in the Abrahamic traditions, you are to obey the revealed law of the true King, and um, but that's not the model. Obedience isn't the key thing, the keynote of the religious mm. traditions that sprout in India. Hinduism, Buddhism, mm -hmm. Jainism, Sikhism, all those traditions have a different family, a different setup, and they, they begin with delusion, Maya, that we're, we're in a, like Plato's cave, that there are shadows on the wall that we think are real, because all we can see are the shadows, we don't see the light behind us, the fire behind us. And we have to go through a process of transformation of leaving the cave to get to real light, which is not uh, inside the cave, and which blinds us. The truth is undigestible initially. The same thing is with the Indic philosophy is that we, we're, we're trapped in an illusion and that we have to not obey the laws within that illusion, but break out of that illusion. The Buddha is a title that means the awakened one. One has to wake up from the illusion that we got trapped by. So in the Indic context, it's a dramatic play, a drama that we've got caught in. And the keynote is how to wake up from that drama. What is the drama composed of? The karmic traces of greed, hatred and delusion of in Sikhism, it would be calm, crude, lord, more, hankar, which are similar vices. Anger, lust, greed, covetousness, fascination, delusion, pride. That's what creates the, uh, um, brings us back each time, is that we've, we've acted ignorantly in delusion, selfishly, that has blinded us. If each action that we have is planting a seed, let's say it's on very fertile ground, which is what our minds are, hearts are, very fertile ground, and each action is a seed, then there will be a tree sprouting, another tree sprouting, so much so that eventually we'll be in a forest which blocks out the light, and you'll be in darkness, and your darkness is of your own making. So here, here is the same analogy that our beginning is that we're trapped by our own deeds, trapped by our own actions, and we have to wake up from that and to see that. Um, okay, so in the Abrahamic traditions, what you get because of the, the notion of sovereignty, sovereign rule, 
the king rule, the divine right of kings, the rise of the nation states, a democratic process, a president, etc. You get a continuation of the idea of uh, one revelation being the true revelation. In fact, Christianity makes up this distinction itself. It starts to talk about true religion and false religion, such that paganism, heathenism, etc. is now false religion, uh, Gnosticism, etc. All that is false religion, and with the arrival of this new revelation, we get um, true religion. Now, this is the background to the notion of the universal truth, which is theological. The, the first science is theology. Theology is the queen of the sciences. Academia transmutates from theology, from a religious worldview, into eventually a secular. Although I would argue that that process was never final. Mm. And so there's a, a, a theological underpinning to all secular concepts. And so here we have um, the arising then of a notion of a universal which is always top-down, which is, the, which is what that how that tradition understands itself. Here's the law revealed. It's just that now God is dead. We're revealing the law. Man, reason is the top. Very interesting side point here is that if we see the triangle of... Um, medieval period or ancient period where God is at the top and revelation is the only way we connect to man, to humanity um, when God is dead during the Enlightenment, Renaissance the Enlightenment and uh, Nietzsche says that and we killed him he says <laughs> yes right when, when he says that um, what, what we get is a secularization of uh, as Immanuel Kant says, dare to think, of our thinking critical faculties, dare to question authority, question the authority of religion, question the authority of God, question the authority of this top-down revelation, telescope, Copernicus revolution, The we don't revolve uh, around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun, it's heliocentric, the challenge of science, etc., etc. So this massive paradigm shift that occurs in, in Europe gives man this idea that they are gods, that, it, that reason right. is the top, ultimate truth. Yeah. But reason starts to create the same hierarchy when it goes to colonizing other people. So they start to give the law of uh, seeing other traditions either convert them to Christianity or Islam, etc. Or um, um, see them as a subservient developing level. Right. So, this, so that's the, the history of... So I just mean to... What modernity didn't realize and i'm of the school of thought that aligns with decolonialism that no modernity can be thought of without coloniality so when we say modernity we always have to always say colonialism colonial modernity and there's a reason for that i might return to towards the end but when what, what so rather than have a triangle like this uh, sorry, it's a top-down where, where God, the infinite, the unknown, and we're man at the bottom, small little sinners. That's inverted because now we, we have man, but he thinks there's, we can know things, which is a very non-religious idea. <laughs> Secular idea is we can know things, we can name things, in other words, the ter interpretive layer is truth-speaking, mm. not the encounter with the other, the mysterious. 
But what the modern man didn't realize is the rise of psychology, the rise of the subconscious. Now there's revelations from the subconscious like I myself experienced in mm. the awakening. So now there's a revelation called Gustav Jung called nature, the subconscious. The earth, the whole world, the nature is a subconscious. He, inside the subconscious for him were the archetypes that had to be connected with and revealed for this individuation to a true person and transformation. So revelation wasn't done away with. The unknown wasn't done away with. The inexplicable wasn't done away with. It can't, it can't be. be. I mean, any right. human being who um, is beyond four years old should realize that, right? <laughs> right. The cracks keep showing yeah. up. If you enforce that interpretive layer, the cracks keep showing yeah, exactly. up. Exactly. The cement keeps cracking. Yeah. yeah. So that was an aside. Basically, what I've done now is to say why it is that the universal is problematic. Because it's speaking of one center. It's just Christians saying this is the truth. What the plural, so that's top down. And that was institutionalized by 1930s, 84.6% of the globe was colonized by European Christian races. That's practically the globe. And what they did wasn't just genocidal physically of the people, it was also epistemicide. They destroyed indigenous knowledge systems. And those indigenous knowledge systems, one of them being Sikhi, um, uh, 15th, 16th century, so much later, um, was able to survive rather than the ancient ones uh, because it had different notions. So, so the pluriversal resonates with the way Sikhs understand. If the universal is top-down, exclusionary, and you have to convert or be a part of the club to get access to it, the pluriversal is the complete opposite. It's ground up and it's of from multiple voices. Um, so, I mean, that answers that question, but I, I, I need to elaborate if, if you want sure. me to. If, if, you, if there's other oh, yeah. questions you have, I can tag it in. Well, it's really interesting because uh, I myself am a devout Christian, and as I'm listening to you, one of the things that I've done digging back into the church fathers is this idea, one of, I don't know if you're familiar with theosis, the idea of participating in the divine nature through our fellowship. Obviously, for the Christian, there's that barrier is always fi like finally impermeable, right? But there can be, um, there, there is a very strong, uh, not in America as much, but uh, well, you could say from the charismatic side, but there's a very strong mystical tradition. Uh, and that idea of the ineffable. And so I do see some some crossover with what you're yeah. saying. Is that, is, I mean, right. Are those notions similar? That's absolutely okay. right. And I was going to gotcha. mention it myself, that, that broad yeah. caricature overlooks, <laughs> Sorry to steal your thunder. Yes. overlooks <laughs> the mystical dimension in Kabbalah, yeah. in Sufism, in Christian mystics, mm. female and male, uh, across the board with their language. You know, Meister Eckhart said, take me to the God beyond God. Because he saw the interpretive layer being problematic. And uh, yeah. that's what mystics do. Uh, Al-Halaj, 11th century in Islam, gets executed for saying, Al-Haq, I, I, I'm the truth. And uh, while he's getting executed, he says, I won't retract my statement. So I'm right, but you're right to kill me. <laughs> so carry on to execute me, and he's, which is which is beautiful. Something very Socratic about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like um, 
you know, the, the, there's there's real importance to the hard line mm. as well as there is to the permeable mm. line. There's real mm. importance about language and interpretive layer. That's why the Sikh tradition mm. doesn't ha, has to integrate them, not to become mm. ascetic and leave language and become silent. Right. right? Live in monasteries. Yeah, mm. you, you have to engage with the world, you have to engage with language, but how do you engage with the world and language? That's the crucial question. And mm. um, what is language? Language in the Sikh tradition, like in the Christian tradition, St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it was good. Word is in the beginning. Same with the Sikh mm. tradition. Shabbat, the Word, Nam, the name, and Guru are in the beginning. They're there. So mm. this is a very interesting extension, elaboration of what our understanding of language could be. Now, we mm. should talk at some point about the poetic, the musical, as opposed to prose and the conceptual. So, in other words, thinking and feeling being contrasted. Um, because that, that relates directly to how, how do we get out? How do we get out of the entrapments of the delusion that we've ourselves created? Well, then please share about it, because that sounds <laughs> fascinating. I mean, my, so my background, one, the, so much of this resonates with the, the purpose of this. The idea of chasing Leviathan comes from Job 28, where it says, you cannot capture Leviathan. And so the idea of pursuing big questions, but understanding that, um, and it's really interesting how like, uh, and perhaps this is not the correct way to think about it. But for me, like when you talk about colonialism, it hurt Christianity, right? It, it basically, the idea that you can figure out God is a foolish notion because he is so high above, right? And so this idea that truth is something that we capture and we make our own instead of something that we can look at in awe and something that we should continue to pursue and the pursuit is worthy, but it's never final. Um, is I, there's a lot that you've said that resonates. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and then uh, my, my background's in philosophy of art. So if you want to talk about <laughs> poetry and, and dance in terms of awakening, that sounds awesome. So, uh, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but well, please, I, I have uh, by all means, I, go ahead. I, I, we can go on. I have time. Maybe I shouldn't okay. disclose okay. that too quickly, but I, ha I have a lot of time. <laughs> Oh, I got you. No, well then, please, please, by all means, share. Okay, so uh, when I saw Chasing Leviathan, I immediately thought of um, uh, Moby Dick and Ahab. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, thought, yeah, well, yes is, I get that a lot. This is exactly yes. the metaphor. And um, uh, one interesting thing in terms of the difference between the Abrahamic family of religious tradition and the Indic family, mm. we haven't even talked about the East Asian family, which is also another right. different um, uh, paradigm. Uh, in which yeah. they operate, um, is the the notion of capturing the truth is immediately recognized as deeply problematic in the Indic and East Asian families of religious tradition. Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching begins with the Tao that can be followed is not the eternal Tao, the name that can be named is not the eternal name. The Tao that can be followed is not the, eter mm. the eternal Tao. And the name that can be named is not the eternal name. Similarly with the Guru Granth Sahib, the Sikh scripture, 
uh, after the Mool Mantra, the very first line of the very first verse on the first page, it says, Soche Sochnu Hove Je Soche Lakvar, which means no matter how many times I think about the way, it cannot be thought. So then you think, well, what are the 1,530 pages that follow <laughs> talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's uh, like you talked about, you still have to engage with language yeah. because, and, and I wanted to ask you about this, and you started, you started to do it even with religion. How do you recover this kind of pre-colonial, and sorry, how do you handle the future of Sikhi? Yeah. Because is it a recovery? Right. Is that what you're attempting? Yeah. Yeah. Is it evolution? Is it a dialectic? Right. Like uh, some kind of fusion? Yeah. What, what do you see as this, this future that you're progressing towards? Well, it is never recovery um, for many reasons, uh, mm -hmm. but simply because the past can't be repeated. Mm -hmm. But the past isn't the past. <laughs> so, um, in other words, the body is a dynamic river. Heraclitus um, talks about you can't step into the same river twice. We are that. Mm. That's what we are. Our bodies are that river. And we can't step into that mm. river twice. But what do we do? We totally ignore the bodies, changing forces and the sensorium and the information. We ignore it and we live in the story. Oh, I'm a man. I'm this and that. And so we keep missing the dynamism. So it's not about recovering. It's about re-entering into the river that we are. Now, that re-entering into the river, there is no other. There is no um, uh, problem. There's no context in which re-immersion can't occur. So the trans transition into another language, the transition into another context, the transition into another paradigm isn't a problem. If we are able, because... Uh, in any context, in any language, in any gender, in any race, we can dip into the truth. Hmm. It's just how we are able to um, use our languages, return to the translation process, return to the encounter process, and allow that re-immersion to occur, reintegration, re-immersion to occur. So the project here is, um, well, one thing I should say, just a sort of background, um, Islam and Buddhism are probably the most diametrically opposed. And why? Mm -hmm. Because um, Muhammad was criticized by people around him saying, you're not a saint, you're not a prophet, you don't have any miracles. Uh, look at these prophets that they have these miracles. Where's yours? And what he says is, the Quran is my miracle. For 22 years, Bleeding from the mouth, I was able to take the dictations without error. And so I'm the seal of the prophets. There's no need for another revelation because I did it. The mistakes of Judaism, mm. the mistakes in Islamic eyes, the right, mistake right. of the Trinity, the reinterpretation of monotheism, etc. So here we have a notion of um, uh, a, a truth that is captured. Uh, opposed to and therefore untranslatable it's it, right. it, it, you cannot change arabic you can't you can't translate buddhism is there's a story of the buddha in the pali canon um in theravada buddhism the buddhism has three 
turnings of the wheel of Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, has three massive revolutions, which isn't a splitting, which is very interesting, like a, the arboreal notion of tradition in the Abrahamic. There's a splitting, a schism mm. and a diverse, and this council and that council, Eastern Orthodoxy, etc., all these splits. In, in Buddhism, it's a wheel, and what does a wheel do? It rolls. It's yeah. natural to yeah. have a revolution. So here we have yeah. an Indic notion of revolution as being natural, expected. The first turning of the wheel of Dharma is the first turning. There's a second turning, Mahayana. Then there's a third turning, Vajrayana. And the Sikhism is, is exactly like that. That um, it, it has an incredible evolution from Guru Nanak, the founder, Guru Angad, Amradas, Ramdas. There's ten gurus. Throughout the ten gurus, there's incredible um, creativity, poetry, and expansion, and uh, consolidation in various ways, which is wonderful to see. So here, so the other other context. So I, let me just finish that point about Islam and Buddhism. Islam exists by resisting translation. Buddhism can only exist through translations, and that's how. Sikhi is related. It, it, it can only exist by relating to the other, to the other context. It's a little bit more complicated than that because of Gurbani and the, the semantic, poetic structure of the music and the hymns have a certain mm. untranslatability to them. Interesting. So, so it's a little bit more complicated than what, how I'm presenting it. I'm just trying to present at a macro level certain kinds of important differences of paradigm uh, level. Um, I don't know if I've tied up all the loose ends just then. Yeah, well, the, I think the next place that I would love to hear, and I think it's a continuation of a question that my fault, I, 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 got, I got excited and got distracted, but the, we were talking about the poetic, yeah, yeah. and you started to mention, yeah. uh, and forgive the use of the term, but hymns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what is that, you know, you said they're untranslatable. What about them makes them untranslatable and what makes that special? Right. So I wouldn't like to say that they're untranslatable, um, but there's certain kind of um, inevitability about the product of a historical process. It occurred this way <laughs> and it occurred right. in this area through this master, this uh, human being. And these are the languages that person spoke. Um, but what Sikhs do um, in terms of seeing oneself as another, which is how the Sikh tradition expands, um, go against the notion of the Islamic way of understanding the Quran, the Islamic way of understanding uh, Mecca, the Islamic way of understanding Hajj. Um, mm. Just, just for one of the Janam Sakis, which are these birth stories, birth narratives, Guru Nanak travels all around the world and in four directions, these Udasis, they're called. And he goes to Mecca. And on the way to Mecca, he falls asleep because he's, he's traveling by foot from India. <laughs> he travels for over so, two yeah. decades. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. very interesting that Guru Nanak, after his awakening, begins a journey of meeting people and traveling rather than teaching. So for 20 years, he engages in dialogue with all different traditions. So north, south, east, west, he travels. Whereas the Buddhas, the, in Buddhism, 
the Buddha's life story, it culminates with the awakening. And then he teaches what he found out for 40 years. Mm. Guru Nanak's awakening is the beginning point, not the end. It's not a culmination. It's now the starting point of uh, connecting to all different religious traditions. Remember, Sikhism is on the cusp of modernity. Martin Luther is Guru Nanak's times. And the, mm. therefore, it's got incredible hindsight. Punjab mm. is an area where people enter India from uh, the Greeks, uh, Alexander, 3rd century BC, to others from the East as well. So Punjab is very rich soil. And, and being late on the cusp of modernity, it's able to grow in a very mature manner because it's at the confluence of all the paradigms of religious traditions. And therefore, it's incredibly mature in its reflections. I, I mean, I, mm. I'm saying that, um, but I'm not trying to say it as a, like, we're the best. I'm not trying to say it that way. I'm just saying, saying that the, it's not ancient. It's not an yeah. ancient tradition. Yeah. It's sort of like new and has the problems of being new as well. Um, so the poetic. Uh, forgive me. I just want to really quickly. So, and the, I'm going to absolutely butcher this name. I apologize. But Gurunar? Guru Nanak. Guru Nanak. Uh, he is one of the ten gurus. He's the founder. He's the he's the first of the ten gurus. Okay, just yeah. wanted to make sure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So Guru Nanak. Um, so he goes to uh, the Hajj. Goes to the Mecca. Mm -hmm. He falls asleep, and his feet are pointing towards uh, the the Kaaba. Okay. And um, that's disrespectful. <laughs> and one of the attendants <laughs> and the guards comes along and yeah. sort of hits him with a stick and says, "What are you doing? Move your feet." Uh, uh, away from the house of God, from the Kaaba. Mm. And Guru Nanak says to him, Oh, I am so sorry. Could you move my feet uh, in that direction? <laughs> and the attendant thinks, What the hell? I <laughs> just turn 180 degrees. But as he picks Guru Nanak's feet up to move them 180 degrees, the attendant sees the Kaaba right there. And then he moves them in another direction, and there's the Kaaba right there. Then he moves them in another direction, and there's the Kaaba right there. So, in other words, there's the mystical, um, for those who are immersed in the dynamic flow of existence, um, at the level of conscious, super-conscious awareness, uh, there is no one place that is God, one place that is truth. And that's why the Parmandar Sahib in Amritsar, has four doors. Anybody from all directions are able to come in, and that uh, uh, the creator was, is within the creation. And the creation is in the creator, which is a beautiful um, uh, dis deconstructive thought, destroys mm. all interpretive modes. And there's an interesting, you know, and again, this is coming from my very weak Wikipedia knowledge, which I, I think I should coin that phrase because <laughs> I think that's kind of the, what we operate at at the cultural <laughs> level. But this idea of, um, and feel free to correct this, um, but this idea that uh, instead of focusing on truth, uh, Siki focuses on the, on truthful living. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we are running out of time here. Uh, for our listeners, do you mind kind of summarizing? I think that might be a great way to end our, oh, our okay, episode sure. today, kind of dis discussing that. Yeah, so there's a difference between 
an ideological position, a political view, a Marxism or whichever you want, or secularism or theism or atheism. There's a difference between views, mm -hmm. two ways away. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in, in uh, Buddhism, it's called the middle way. It's not called the middle view. The middle way means that it's a praxis. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the same with the Sikh tradition, that uh, the, the way, you see, the view could be the Ten Commandments. This is the truth. Mm. But, you know, you open any hotel top drawer room and there's the Bible <laughs> in there. It's like yeah. an interesting sort of like anthropological phenomena. <laughs> oh, here's a Bible. Okay. And then you can just close the drawer and then watch whatever you want on the TV, right? So there's sort of like a huge disconnect between the truth. You know, I, mm. here is the truth. I give you the truth. That's sort of like not laughed upon, but seen as, okay, relax. Um, that's not, not how it works. Put it in the, yes, put it in the... Yeah. You, you put that in a drawer and you leave facing you all the time, the TV. Yeah, yeah, right, right. right. Instead of taking the book, realizing it's a cross, and you carry the cross. Mm. That's the praxis. You carry the cross. You live the suffering. Mm. You live as the humble life of a servant, right? Mm. And you serve the, the meek and the... Right, so that, that's, that's the point being made in terms of... Uh, on page 62 on the Guru Granth Sahib when it says truth is high, but higher still is truthful living. In other words, mm. you have to embody the truths, you know, walk your talk. You have to uh, yeah. live it out. And when we live something out, it far outstrips the language in which it is worded to become a universe in and of itself. So the language is merely a symbol, sort of like a, uh, a shortcut of what it meant to travel. To journey and you can have the language without any of the real meaning behind yeah, it yeah. which we see yeah. all the time that's that's what a hypocrite is yeah yeah right yeah. it's just a mask and not the genuine article yeah so that's um, what, um there's a shift from theory truth mm. philosophy to praxis which is the living of it being loving okay love we should be lo what is love <laughs> okay to try and write a rule book of love right <laughs> okay and try and enact that then you suddenly realize yeah. how difficult it is. Loving, being loving is um, something that has to be done for you to get to understand just how bad you are at it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so room for improvement there. <laughs> always, always. <laughs> so that, so that, that can't, I mean, we can't capture this. So that, that's why they begin the Tao Te Ching, the, the uh, Patanjali Yoga Sutra and um, uh, mm. the Guru Granth Sahib. They all begin with this... Um, negation of the illusion of our interpretive meanings to try and get mm. us to realize that there's three forms of knowledge. There's not just knowledge by distance. Okay, that's a tree. I don't have to see the tree. I know what a tree is. That's knowledge by distance, right? That's science. Then there's knowledge yep. by association. You could say praxis. You could say that could be religion. Okay, I start to try and, try and carry the cross, but I'm a useless Christian or I'm a useless Sikh. I'm just really bad at it. That's knowledge by praxis. You, you know, you learn a skill. You don't write a book about how to ride a bike. You say, get on the bike and fall. Because it's not a knowledge. The bike is mm. an embodied knowing, not a thinking. Mm. 
it's a martial arts sports people get this straight away get out of your head get into the flow of the movement because it's your movement that teaches you you know what balance is balance isn't a concept yes. balance is an existential phenomenal material reality it's not a thought yes right so that's that you could say those two forms of knowledge capture everything that's what the west has relied upon in my estimation generally speaking ignoring the mystical side but then there's the third sure. dimension of knowing which is knowing by becoming knowing by being knowing by identity knowing by merger knowing knowing by waking up mysticism where you so the first two can be colonized by the ego i'm such a good christian i'm doing all the right things i'm serving the people i i got a soup kitchen i do this and you 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 just deluded right or i'm a, i'm a good yeah. seek i do the part i do the prayer i do the things and we we deluded so knowledge by distance and knowledge by association knowledge by praxis both those two can be colonized by the ego the only way to enter the third form of knowing is by ego loss mm. breaking the wall of the ego and decentering the ego and um i don't know if i have 5 minutes if that's enough or no absolutely no no go ahead this this is really important um simon way okay, if i could add the christian mystic sorry yeah oh, no, sorry go ahead oh i was just going to say like i mean immediately right like for the christian this is the whole point of if you if you humble yourself you'll be exalted but if you exalt yourself you'll be humbled exactly right so exactly go ahead and you that, were going to mention the christian mystic though whole philosophy is that it's the stroke of humility humility is an epistemic uh, orientation it's not just oh being mm -hmm. humble it reveals knowledge humility reveals yes. insights and uh, the humbling the breaking down of the ego the crying gets you to the poetic to the musical and music can get mm. you to your feelings which is deeper than your thoughts feelings are in your body and that's how you start to that's why all of the guru granth sahib are hymns that are sung to indian uh, ragas 31 ragas musical melodies the music mm. is a way to get you out of your thought and um immerse you into your subconscious your feelings your pain your trauma you know mm. the guru says you have to find that door in the illusion the cinema that you got trapped in the dark illusion of these lights and you don't know where the exit is you have to find that door that door mm. there's a hymn called that door sodar and what is the door it's pain interesting because if we have a quick definition of the ego the ego is that mm -hmm. psycho emotional structure that tries to maximize pleasure minimize pain we're all instrumentalists not that's not the right way to say it all egos are instrumentalists <laughs> they all try to yes, maximize yes. pleasure i understand the distinction <laughs> yes yeah 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 and all uh, and one of us and it's impossible you know i say to my class has anybody managed that by the way <laughs> you keep trying it have anybody managed it do you want to try something else guru nanak says it's very rare to meet somebody mm. who's the opposite who maximizes pain and minimizes mm. pleasure because he realizes pain is that door mm. pain reveals new insights pleasure merely gives you a comfort that you're accustomed to yeah right so here we have just a very simple existential non philosophical notion of sikhi listening accepting what you hear once you hear the 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 truth of a particular uh, encounter and then uh, live it through love 
So this listening, learning, and loving, sikh, means devoted learner. It means learning, sikhna, to learn, but it also means a devotee of learning, of, 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 of the divine. So learning and loving and listening are inseparable. To love, you have to learn. <laughs> you better. Yeah. <laughs> to love, you have to listen. Otherwise, it's yes. not going to arise. So those three right. are inseparable, and that's what makes up a, a bhakti, the devotional way. Hmm. I don't know if I answered all the questions that you had. No, no, that is. Oh, no, this is this is phenomenal, and I, I thank you so much. Um, it has been an absolute pl uh, pleasure. Um, I, I apologize. I actually. <laughs> My son has a basketball oh, game, right, okay. and so that's why I said that. <laughs> and what it was not, I I could sit here. Uh, I mean, this is why I do this this uh, podcast. I mean, uh, love to have you back on sometime. Sure. Uh, there's so much more to cover. Yeah, but this is um, uh, this has been so um, uh, I would say enlightening, but you used awakening, so I'll use the <laughs> same, yeah, so, so awakening. Same, same thing. <laughs> uh, yes, but very uh, in, incredibly um, uh. Useful and helpful are terrible words for this. I, I would say very, uh, I, I just, I'm very grateful for what you have uh, uh, given here today. And I uh, just want to say thank You're you. You're very so welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. You know, revelation is receiving uh, a, a speech, a language, mm. but it also gives a voice. It's not only come from a voice, revelation also gives a voice. And when you enact what you try to aspire to, to create the habit of listening, what listening does, it gives the other person a voice. Hmm. And I think that's a, yes. that's a way of understanding a revelation because the Sikhs moved away from top down and it was the other's voice that was revealing to them. Hmm. And so, interesting. Uh, you know, the, the, the analogy that I'd like to explain is the amphora, but well, yeah. for next time, because we don't want to miss your no, absolutely. <laughs> I apologize. Next time I'll schedule it. Um, but uh, thank you again. You're very welcome. Thank you.